This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Welcome to America Changed Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Pegues. Thanks for being with us. What a week. I didn't think I'd be sitting here talking about Putin actually invading Ukraine, but he went ahead and did it. There was all this attempt at diplomacy leading up to this moment, but it just seems to me, based on what we've seen coming out of that region, based on what we've heard from Vladimir Putin, that this is something he just wanted to do. And diplomacy was really a farce because he already had his mind made up. And I say that just just based on the speeches that he's given in recent days. So this is part of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to dedicate this entire program to Ukraine and what's going on there, how it affects Americans. And to begin the conversation, I'm going to bring on War Stories columnist for Slate, Fred Kaplan. Fred, thanks for being with us. Sure, my pleasure. All right. So as we be- begin this discussion, the invasion has happened. We've been talking with others and you know, our listeners have probably heard it discussed elsewhere. But I wanted to ask you, someone who has had uh, has a, a great deal of experience covering these kinds of stories, although obviously this is unique in its own way. What do you think Putin is trying to accomplish here? I think initially he thought that he would apply this kind of military pressure on Ukraine's borders, that uh, the NATO alliance would would not respond in unity, that, that too many countries in Europe had too many interests to continue trading with Russia, especially Germany with the Nordstrom uh, to gas pipeline, which was about to open up. Uh, he, he, I think he thought Biden was weak or incompetent. And I think he thought that he could just apply pressure on Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine, and Zelensky would have to succumb to his pressures. Uh, I think he gravely miscalculated because NATO is now more unified and, and more uh, <clears throat> you know, enthusiastic for the mission than at any time since the end of the Cold War. At the same time, uh, I, I must confess that, that I underestimated the degree to which Putin seems to have been willing to actually carry out his threat uh, if Zelensky didn't surrender peacefully. I'm looking over the translated transcript of Putin's recent speech. He, He starts off by saying it was simply impossible to endure all this. It as if Russia's a a victim of something. He says it was necessary to immediately stop this nightmare of genocide against millions of people living there, referring to Ukraine, who rely only on Russia and rely only on you and me. It was these aspirations, feeling, and pain of the people that were the main motive for us to make the decision to recognize the People's Republic republics of Donbass. I, he says, I think it is important to emphasize this. So he believes that Ukraine was on the brink of becoming a nuclear threat to Russia. I don't know if he believes anything that he said, quite honestly. It's hard to know what he truly believes. He has been putting out the line. And by the way, he did a similar thing before invading 
uh, Georgia and occupying the uh, aspiringly breakaway provinces of Abkhazia and South Ossetia there as well back in 2008, and also when he annexed Crimea uh, in 2014, that uh, the Russian-speaking peoples in those areas were being, you know, uh, visited with genocide <clears throat> by the Ukrainian savages, by the Nazis, and ruling Ukraine, as he put it. Uh, this is kind of formulaic. Uh, look, he has access to <clears throat> Russian intelligence, which I'm sure isn't terrible. There, There is absolutely no evidence, and in fact the opposite of evidence, that the United States is helping Ukraine build nuclear weapons. Uh, there were nuclear weapons uh, on Ukrainian soil when the Soviet Union was still around. However, these were all controlled by the Soviet Union. It's not like there's anybody in Ukraine now who has the capacity or knowledge to start enriching uranium or, or anything like that. It's all just a massive pretext. That's what it seems to be. Uh, I'm going to go on, and I hope I don't, I don't bore you with this, but I, I find this speech fascinating because he's ranting and raving. He's talking about a gang of Ukrainian nationalist punishers, accomplices of Hitler, he says, killed defenseless people during the Great Patriotic War. They openly declare that they have claim to a number of other Russian territories. So he's referring to Hitler. How do you negotiate with someone whose reality is entirely different than the Western worlds? Well, at this point, I'm afraid you don't. Uh, I did think through this crisis, this buildup, uh, at least some of his officials, for example, in the foreign ministry, were hinting at the possibility of a diplomatic solution through uh, the, the revival of, of the Minsk agreements, which was a ceasefire agreement signed in 2015, <clears throat> possible convening of a European conference to ban certain kinds of missiles and so forth. But one thing that we've learned <clears throat> is that Putin is really the only one in charge. I mean, let me give you an example. Two days before Putin declared that he was recognizing the independence of the two separatist regions in Ukraine, his ambassador to the UN said, let me make this clear. We fully recognize that Donetsk and Luhansk provinces are part of Ukraine. <clears throat> I think nobody around Putin really quite knows what he thinks. That's why sometimes in the past few weeks you've seen some of his officials talking out of both sides of their mouth because they don't know how the boss is going to come down. There are some people who have made comparisons between what is happening now uh, to World War II. Others have talked about uh, what happened in Iraq or Bosnia. Uh, do you see parallels? No, you know, I think the World War II comparison is really overshot. I mean, look, uh, Hitler had a gigantic panzer army. Uh, an enormously padded economy. I mean, as late as 1943, the German economy was capable of putting out not only lots of tanks and airplanes and so forth, but they were still manufacturing lace. I mean, there, it was a very strong economy, a very strong military. Uh, Putin is going to have a hard time occupying Ukraine. He's not going to be able to send the tanks rolling on to occupy you know, Poland, <clears throat> and then, you know, France or Romania or whatever. I, I think this is really more comparable to the 1968 occupation of Czechoslovakia, when uh, the head of the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia back then, uh, Alexander Dubček, uh, suddenly took on kind of a reformist uh, line, began to talk about socialism with the human face, there was a mass movement of anti-Soviet protesters in the Prague Spring. They were reaching out to the nations of Western Europe for some kind of alliance. And uh, Leonid Brezhnev, who is the head of the Soviet 
Party back then, cracked down, sent in five tank divisions, 250,000 troops, and uh, removed Dubček, installed uh, a Quisling, uh, put down the revolts, and occupied the place for the next 20 years or so. Now, the difference is that back then, <clears throat> the, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia was mainly on Moscow's side. They didn't much like, the, the, the functionaries didn't like Dubček. And there was a Czech army that was also very willing to cooperate with the Soviet Union. That's not the case right now. You have a Ukrainian army. We'll soon see how strong they are. You have civilian defense groups. You have Ukraine having been an independent republic for the last 30 years with Putin's moves in the last <clears throat> two weeks uh, boosting uh, a sense of Ukrainian nationalism, even in some parts of the eastern Ukraine, which had been more leaning toward Russia. In other words, <clears throat> he is going. To, he he may very well conquer Kiev. He may very well end the first phase of this war. But if he plans to keep his guy in power and to keep Ukraine from slipping over into the European Union or even NATO. Uh, he's going to be facing uh, an insurgency, uh, a serious resistance. Also, in 1968, the Cold War was still on. The West, we, we recognized that the world was divided into two spheres. Czechoslovakia was part of the Warsaw Pact, the alliance led by the Soviet Union. <clears throat> Soviet troops move into Czechoslovakia. You know, we lamented it, but nobody here did anything about it. I mean, even diplomatically or economically. That is not the case anymore. I, I think uh, the kinds of sanctions that, that President Biden and, and the European Union have, have rustled up <clears throat> could have, uh, over over the long haul, quite devastating impact on Russia's economy and, and perhaps even to the degree that uh, Putin's entourage are hurt, uh, perhaps even on Putin's uh, continuation in power. Putin has said that Russia has no plans to occupy Ukraine, but who believes him at this point? Well, let's let's say that he's true. What does that even mean? So, what does he do? He he. he I mean, he's 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 launched this invasion of Ukraine from from three sides: uh, ground, air, and naval forces. Uh, he he has said that his goal is, is demilitarization and denazification. He's talking about regime change. So how do you have regime change? You, you just overthrow the government in Kiev and then say, okay, that's it. Everything's fine. We're going home. No, he'll have to keep a fair number of those 150,000 troops or however many there are in Ukraine to, uh, to to continue the the power of the quisling that that he will have installed, and that does require a certain amount of occupation. You can't just leave it there and say, okay, now the people will the Ukrainian people will rejoice and 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 give cakes and cookies to the new leader, and everything will be the, the and Ukraine will will come back into Moscow's orbit. Uh, if he does believe that he can do all this without a fairly long-term occupation, then I think he may be even more delusional than, than I think. Uh, speaking of someone who's delusional, this term that he has been throwing around, Nazification, he included many references to uh, Nazism, uh, of course, the, the leader of Ukraine is Jewish. Um, I don't, I don't know if he is he trying to. He's obviously with this speech that I keep referencing. He's speaking to his domestic audience and setting this up as some uh, battle over evil. Right. Well, you know, you have to keep in mind. You know, World War Two is still a very vivid memory for Russians, even those who weren't alive when World War II. You know, I think 27 million Russians died in World War II. Uh, Ukraine, during much of the war, was occupied by Nazis. Uh, so saying that, oh, the people running Ukraine right now are 
basically inheritors of Nazism. They're anti-Russia. They're anti-Soviet. This appeals to a certain strand of Russian uh, popular opinion and Russian culture. Uh, He's reminding them that, hey, you know, Ukraine used, used to be you know, under Nazi rule. I don't know, and, and the media, Russian media, are, are, are repeating this ad infinitum. I don't know. I, I, I was a Moscow correspondent uh, from 92 to 95. Uh, I haven't been there since. So I don't know the degree to which this is going over. Since that time, there, there's been quite a lot of movement back and forth between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, he Putin also says, that, that Ukraine is part of Russia, that we're all one people. He told George W. Bush, Ukraine is not a real nation. So on the one hand, he's saying, you're really all a part of us. Please come back, lay down your arms. Don't don't follow this Nazi in, in Kiev. And at the same time, he's bombing, uh, granted, military targets all over all over Ukraine. But, you know, there are people who live close to these military targets uh, Ukrainians are getting killed. Uh, their towns are getting overrun. Uh, I don't know how long he can he can keep up this kind of contradictory messaging. Perhaps just long enough to uh, carry out this invasion successfully. Phase one, yes. Okay, so what do you think phase two is for him? Well, phase two and and is uh, is the resistance. I mean, you know, we all thought. And, and I don't think that what's going on now is like the U.S. invasion of Iraq. But it, there was this notion we would, uh, you know, put on this juggernaut to Baghdad, overthrow Saddam Hussein. Uh, the Iraqi people would greet us with flowers and candy. Uh, <clears throat> we would say, OK, Iraqis, you're on your own. And uh, leave. It, it was believed, you know, that that war started in March of, of 2003. It was thought that uh, the troops would be home by summer. <laughs> you know, we were there for nine years because uh, there were a lot of people there, a lot of, of, of people in the Iraqi army who lost their jobs. Just as I'm sure Putin, if he does occupy Kiev, he will dismiss the entire Ukrainian army and replace them with Russian troops. Well, they'll be without jobs. They know where the weapons are. Uh, A civil defense force has been actively training for many months. Uh, I don't think the Ukrainian people or or those armed people are going to just roll over. Uh, The occupiers are going to have a problem on their hands. Plus, uh, unless as long as NATO and the EU hold together on these sanctions, uh, Putin and the people around him and the Russian economy are, are going to have a hard time uh, integrating, reintegrating with the rest of the world and convincing the Russian people that this was really a good thing. As we discuss next steps here, I envision the possibility of Putin, despite this resistance that um, if they try to occupy Ukraine, they will uh, experience, they will feel it, but they still have enough of a, a military to keep pushing West. And who's to say that this NATO alliance will stick together and will want to take on Russia, which could then trigger a world war? Well, I, I would disagree with your premise. I think <clears throat> they barely... As I said, when, when Czechoslovakia occupied, I mean, when the Soviet Union occupied Czechoslovakia in 68, it took a quarter million troops, and that was with a cooperative local communist party and military. Uh, this is about 150,000 troops uh, in, a, in a country three times the size with 10 times the population. I, I think they'll barely have enough to occupy Ukraine. They will not have uh, the, the the firepower or the logistics, more importantly, the logistics, to keep rolling westward, and it, and I think I think the last thing, again, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about what Putin wants. I think he does not want to have a direct fight uh, with the United States, which he would have 
the second. Uh, he rolled into Polish, Romanian, or Baltic territory. I, I think his I I think his aims, while extravagant enough, are are limited in that respect. Well, doesn't you talk about the hundred fifty thousand troops? But how large is the Russian military as a whole? Isn't it doesn't doesn't it number in the millions? Well, you count a lot of in terms of tanks, aircraft, you know, heavy weapons, that sort of thing. He's diverted nearly half of his military to do this operation. Uh, it's a good thing that he's on good terms with China right now because the whole eastern border is pretty well wide open. <laughs> uh, he also keeps a certain amount of military forces in and around Moscow uh, to defend against any internal revolt. Uh, there are theaters all over Moscow, uh, mil separate military theaters. Uh, I, you know, again, um, it, it's very, it's. One must resist the temptation to make predictions, but if he really thinks he can roll on into the rest of Central and Eastern Europe and even beyond, uh, he will be very, very sadly mistaken. Fred Kaplan, columnist with Slate, War Stories columnist. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Welcome back to America Change Forever. Let's continue the conversation on what's happening in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with Joe Serencioni, who is a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Joe, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. You, uh, obviously you saw the invasion beginning, not in person, on TV. Tell tell me, what, what did you think when you saw that unfolding on your television screen? Well, you knew it was coming, but you couldn't believe it was actually happening. That you thought maybe at the last minute he would change his mind, uh, or he'd make it a limited incursion to various sectors in eastern Ukraine, but no, an assault on the entire country, the second largest country in Europe, being assaulted by the first largest country in Europe, something we've never seen. We've never seen any, anything like this in our lifetimes. You write that, uh, you know, there are some concerns here, or people should be concerned, or it's rational if you have concerns about the possibility of a nuclear war here. Is is that something that could happen in terms of this situation uh, escalating to the point where there are real concerns about this uh, turning into some sort of nuclear conflict? There's a low probability of this turning into the, the use of nuclear weapons, but it is not zero. And if there was any doubt about that, uh, Putin reminded us in his statement where he announced his special military operation that there were nuclear stakes here. He did it in, in, in two ways. One was the bizarre claim that Ukraine was developing nuclear weapons. And this, he said, is why he at, had to act. We cannot uh, feel safe, he said. We cannot develop, we cannot exist while we face a permanent threat from, the, from, from Ukraine. So we have to take bold and immediate action. This, of course, is, is nonsense. Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons. It is incapable of developing nuclear weapons, but is somewhat reminiscent of the threats that were made about uh, or alleged about Iraq having nuclear weapons and therefore justifying an invasion, or that Iran might might develop a nuclear weapon and therefore we have to invade. So he's he used that nuclear threat in ways that we've seen before, but then he also did something else. He reminded us that even though the Cold War was over, that the, Russia is still the world's largest nuclear power, which is true. They have 6,200 nuclear weapons. And after stating that and reminding us, he said this, there should be no doubt for anyone that any potential aggressor will face defeat and ominous consequences should it directly attack our country. This is a nuclear threat that we haven't seen anyone not named Donald Trump or Kim Il-sung 
issue in a, in, a, in a very long time, and certainly not in a conflict between Russia and the United States. Well, that's that's right. And didn't he go a step further? Didn't he say that if you try to uh, respond, you will face the kind of weapons you haven't faced before? Something Something along those lines... Yes, in his previous statement, he echoed his previous statement. The, the statement that, that he issued yesterday about attacking Ukraine was a little shorter, a little tighter. But yes, he's been making these nuclear threats. So even though you may not have been thinking about nuclear weapons for many years, Vladimir Putin has. What I was thinking, just watching him and the speeches that he's been making, it's almost like he's unhinged. You know, we, we, of course, it's Vladimir Putin, former KGB agent. We know, and I've written a book on, on Russia and on how uh, Putin and the FSB, KGB, not FSB, excuse me, uh, sort of delved into the 2016 election with these cyber attacks and what, what his goal seems to be, which is to reinstate uh, Russia to what it was during the Soviet Union, essentially, and, and his grand plan. So I know a little something about Vladimir Putin and how he thinks. But with this conflict, it's almost as if he's, he's gone a step further. He's almost just, you know, to use the term unhinged in some of the things that he's saying and some of the things that he is alleging. Well, well, that, that's possible. I'm not really qualified to, to say, although I do have a degree in psychology from Boston College, uh, that, you know, is he suffering from megalomania? Is he, is he disassociated from reality? Sort of like Donald Trump, the, the worries you had that this man is just simply not connected to reality. That's possible. On the other hand, everything he's done is very careful, very methodical, long developing. There's nothing spontaneous ab- about this. And it might be consistent with the way he thinks great powers can operate now. After all, he's just seen 20 years of the United States conduct what many people would think is irrational wars with countries that didn't really threaten us and it resulted in the, the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives, he may think he's just doing what great powers can do now. And that compared to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Le- Libya, that the, his war is going to be relatively minor. The difference, of course, is that he's conducting it in Europe and not in the Middle East. And he's right up against the border of, of European countries protected by the NATO alliance, countries that he's now calling into question their very existence. He's, this is what he says he's saying in his speeches. He doesn't recognize the, the independence of these former uh, Soviet r- republics directly threatening the Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, etc. So yes, this is a terrifying new moment. Is it rational or irrational, it's hard to say. So how does the Biden administration walk this tightrope and not uh, escalate this to the point that you have to put boots on the ground and that you have to bring out your full arsenal? Yeah. Well, I'd have to say that the Biden administration is handling this as well as anyone could expect, even better. They, he is preserving our number one asset, which is unity of our alliance. Remember, we have a global military alliance. Russia has Belarus. You know, that, that's it. So, and he's preserving that alliance. He's doing everything in careful consulta- consultation. There's been no dissent here. And so even if he didn't go as far as some wanted with the um, economic sanctions announced today, he went as far as he could get and get everybody on board, and we'll see how things develop. Number two, he's he's drawn a clear line. He is not going to commit U.S. troops to Ukraine. Uh, we do not want to see U.S. troops directly fighting Russian troops. That is not something the Joint Chiefs of, of Staff want to see. So when you hear some, some hawks in Washington saying, why aren't we committing? Why aren't we hitting him with all the sanctions? Well, there's a reason for that. 
You want to try to contain this conflict. You want to try to bring it to a close at the lowest level of casualty possible with the lowest level of risk. Biden is doing that. He even handled the press very well today, staying very disciplined uh, in, in his remarks. The danger here is and then I'll shut up for a while. The danger here is that in the last 10 years, both the United States and Russia have developed these theories of integrated deterrence. That is, in an effort to sort of strengthen deterrence, they've integrated their various instruments of coercion, economic, conventional, cyber, nuclear. So the clear, bright lines that used to be drawn between nuclear use and conventional military use have been blurred, even erased. And the risk is that in the heat of battle or facing certain defeat, that one side or the other might decide they have to escalate up. And you could quickly put yourself in a situation where I would say particularly Putin might decide that he needs to use a nuclear weapon. And there are even doctrines inside Russia that some hold called escalate to de-escalate, the theory that if things get serious enough, if they're losing a war, they would use a nuclear weapon to demonstrate the seriousness of the situation and force the West to uh, back down. Unfortunately, that is highly unlikely to be the response the West would have to the use of a nuclear weapon. So you can see right there the, the real risks there are, even if everybody's behaving rationally, even if there's not a madman behind this invasion, there, there are risks. And we haven't seen these kinds of risks, I would say, in 30 years. So if you are frightened by what's going on right now, that is a completely rational response to what is developing. Well, and, and not that I want to add to the factors that are so unpredictable here, but there's also this prospect of cyber attacks. Yes. Cyber attacks that could trigger a NATO action. Uh, absolutely. And so you might ask, well, don't, don't we have the capability to sort of shut Moscow down? Could we cyber attack Moscow and turn off the lights, turn off the subways, turn off the communications? Well, we might be able to do that, but you do that. And that is an act of war. That is, if you affect a country in that way, it doesn't really matter if you're doing it by a bomb or by a computer. You are crippling a country at a key place. And, and this is where Biden, again, where his caution, his measured approach uh, is to our advantage. You you want to press Putin. You want to increase the cost for this, but you don't want to increase the cost so suddenly or so sharply that it could result in them feeling that their existence is called into question and that they are not going to they're going to respond to your cyber attack not by their cyber attack but by another instrument, a nuclear weapon, for example. And that's the danger here. It's this slippery slope. It's like by trying to create this seamless spectrum of deterrent instruments, you're actually creating a, a slope that once you get on it, there's no clear way to get off. Joe, um, you've given me more to worry about. I got to be honest here. This is, I was already worried, but this conversation is, uh, has sort of increased the stakes in terms of all of these different things that we should be considering at this point and why this invasion of Ukraine is so very serious. But it also, for me, I'm wondering why would anybody want to be president right now? Because this is a really complicated uh, crisis. And it's, you know, a month ago, we weren't talking about Ukraine. We were talking about the Supreme Court, uh, midterms, but this changes the ball game even domestically uh, as far as politics are concerned. A absolutely. You know, we thought that the pandemic was going to be the decisive crisis for Joe Biden or the economic uh, recovery or climate change, but it's Ukraine. This is the defining crisis of the of the. Biden ad administration. He's going to be judged on how he handles this. Fortunately, this is his sweet spot. I mean, he's been working on these issues for 36 years in the U.S. Senate, for eight years as vice president. He's got a steady hand here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, this is what, this is his 
sweet spot, as you put it. But there are a lot of Republicans, even some Democratic critics who say over the years he's gotten some of these decisions, foreign policy related, wrong. Yes, that's, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. But it's not just up to him. I mean, we shouldn't be keep thinking about these things as if it's a, a Putin-Zelensky you know, face-off or even a Putin-Biden face-off. You know, the, the citizens of these countries care about what's going on. The citizens of Ukraine are going to have a lot to say about whether Putin's invasion succeeds or not. And just today, we should take some, some solace and even some hope in the fact that there were demonstrations in Moscow against the war. Putin arrested 700 people today protesting against the war. 700 people. So this is not popular in Russia. This thing could sink not because of, of, of his defeats on the battlefield, although that will be a big part, but because of what the opposition to, to this um, is at home. So the, this, this, there's a long way to go. There's a, a lot that's going to develop here. But if and when we get through this crisis, we should have a long, deep discussion of how we got here. And we think our own policies of the last 20 or 30 years and think about how we could have prevented this crisis. Could we have done more to reduce the nuclear risks? Did we squander our unipolar moment? Uh, these are the kinds of conversations that we'll have to put off for now, but they're definitely going to be on the agenda uh, after this crisis is resolved. Well, we've t we've talked to some people who think that perhaps the West has given Putin too much credit for someone that we or the Europeans can negotiate with in good faith, faith that we should have treated this situation or Russia uh, under Putin's leadership uh, like we treated Russia or the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So what do you think? We're mis we're mis did, did the leadership of this country, Republican and Democrat, misjudge Vladimir Putin? I think it's the opposite. I, I don't think anybody had, had any illusions about Putin. I mean, you know, maybe in, in recent months, thinking that there was a way to talk him out of this crisis, that's possible. But I, I would say it's the other way around, um, that w we should have understood more about Putin's paranoia, about Russian nationalism, about uh, their very vulnerable situation as we were expanding NATO as we were conducting wars in the Middle East, as we were ignoring their legitimate security concerns. This doesn't in any way justify what Putin's doing or somehow excuse it. It's just that there were other ways we could have dealt this. For example, going much more slowly in, in the enlargement of NATO, the, the, of understanding that when we put weapons in Poland and Romania that we said are defensive, that he thought were offensive, that he wasn't kidding about that. I think the mistake we made is not understanding enough of the security concerns that Russians had, not just Putin, but that Russians had about the kinds of things we were doing when we thought we were the sole superpower and we could pretty much write the rules as we went along. Joe Serencione, Distinguished Fellow, Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Let's continue our conversation about the situation in Ukraine with Washington Post columnist Henry Olson. Henry, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. All right. So you, you've written that you think there needs to be a new Cold War. Why do you think that's the case? I think Putin has been saying what his objectives are for 20 years. He has stated that the Soviet Union's collapse was the greatest geopolitical calamity of the 20th century. He has patiently rebuilt the military. He has made it clear that he has global ambitions, stationing Russian troops in Syria, supporting the dictatorship in Venezuela, sending Russian bombers and submarines off the American coast. He's already declared the new Cold War. The question is whether we want to accept the challenge, and I think would be fools if we fail to. In what ways do you think the U.S. has failed to realize this dynamic 
to this point? I think it is believed that Putin was a actor who wanted to be in accommodation with the West. So that meant that they thought that he could be deterred in some way and brought into compliance with Western norms if only there would be some slight mediation. That's what I think animated the Germans and the French to negotiate the Minsk Accords. Uh, but I think instead Putin has just been extremely patient about his objectives. And I think that the West finally has recognized as of uh, the invasion, that uh, Putin means what he says. He means to replace the Western-dominated order with one dominated by autocracies, where Russia has a dominant or significant global role. And that means that the game is up. That means that we have to either uh, accept that, in which case NATO becomes a paper tiger, or we have to rearm and start uh, shutting Russia off from communication and intercourse with the West. Well, based on what you're seeing now in terms of this invasion, how do you how do you change that dynamic now? Isn't it too late? Don't you have to uh, find some other way to to uh, slow Putin down or to push him out of control of Russia altogether? Well, first, I think with respect to the Ukraine, it's already too late. The fact is, uh, when we declared that we weren't going to defend it militarily, we sealed its fate that uh, it would uh, be under attack because Russia didn't value the economic sanctions that we could levy. They decided it was worth the cost. Um, so the way to get Putin out of power is to ratchet up the pain on his uh, oligarchs uh, and ordinary Russians, that uh, so far you, it's been perfectly possible to make billions of dollars and enjoy them in the West uh, and still support the regime. What you need to do is say, no, you have to choose Russia. You have to choose between wealth and involvement in the West or support of the regime. Uh, and that could produce the sort of changes that would end Putin and end his revanchist foreign policy. But uh, that's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to save Ukraine. Uh, the issue is not Ukraine. Ukraine, on the other hand, is the flashpoint that forces the West to finally wake up and decide, does it want to try and fight Putin in a way that will weaken him or drive him from power, or does it want to continue to pretend that this man is interested in peace and accommodation with the West. The Biden administration has announced a whole range of sanctions, but when I listen to the sanctions that have been announced, you know, based on history, I wonder if it's going to have any impact on Vladimir Putin. Uh, it won't in the short term. And if this is all that happens, it will probably be something that he will um, be able not to shrug off, but won't cause a disruption in his power. I think what has to happen is a steady uh, um, tightening of those sanctions. And, uh, for example, somebody on Twitter is talking about the oligarchs who have $600 million yachts that are stationed in the West right now. They should be seized. And it doesn't matter that they weren't directly responsible. You need to put pressure on the regime. And that means that what you need to do is put pressure on the people who are financing and supporting the regimes. And that means the oligarchs. Now, what that means is there's going to be a lot of pain for the West. You know, there's a lot of people in particularly London who have benefited from investments and high property prices that Russians have poured in as a hedge against uh, Putin's adventurism. What you need to do is remove the hedge and say, sorry, as long as that man's in power, uh, we will freeze your assets and you won't be able to use them. You won't be able to come to the country. You won't be able to come to any uh, country. And all of that money that you put in our bank accounts uh, for safekeeping uh, will be kept in safekeeping until things change. And uh, when that happens, it has to be global. It can't simply be American because then he can just they can just shift the money around. Uh, and I think that's what Biden is trying to bring about uh, behind the scenes. In some ways, what you're talking about here is the U.S. forcing some sort of regime change in Russia. Uh, the U.S. has tried that in other countries, and it's failed. 
why would we expect something like that through sanctions and other types of economic pressure to lead to real uh, leadership change in Russia? I'm not convinced that it will. But uh, one thing that distinguishes Russia from other countries that we have tried that with is that Russia has an extremely wealthy property class that enjoys being in the West and benefits from being in the West. Venezuela, who we tried to topple with sanctions, did not have that. There was no removal of things uh, that would cause important people in the regime serious political discomfort. Neither did Iran. You know, this is not a place where you had massive amounts of multi-billionaire Iranians uh, who were sheltering their assets in London or in Paris or in Berlin. Uh, Russia is different because of that. So that offers a slim hope for regime change. If it doesn't produce regime change, what it does do is limit the amount of money that Putin can spend on armaments to finance his objectives. Is that even if it doesn't force a regime change, what it does do is limit his ability to wage war. And that in itself is a good thing for the West because it reduces the chance of war and reduces the chance of defeat if war happens. I wonder, what do you think? Would this situation have occurred under uh, President Trump, who seems to think, oh, things would have been different uh, if he had been in the White House right now? Um, you know, obviously, the pre former president is somebody who always makes uh, outlandish statements. But do you think the situation would have been be uh, different, not better, but different uh, as it relates to Russia? Uh, had there been a President Trump right now rather than a President Biden? I think one has to ask what would be gained by that, that I can imagine Trump would have been less willing to arm the Ukrainians. I can imagine that Trump would have been less supportive of Zelensky uh, and consequently maybe had an effect on Zelensky's behavior. I can also imagine that Trump would have been more interested in brokering a deal and using Western and American military supplies to bludgeon uh, Zelensky into some form of submission. So in that sense, I think Trump might have been able to avert an invasion. But that's not the problem. The invasion is simply the sign of Putin's desire to damage and uh, displace the Western global hegemony. And in that sense, if Trump had been able to avoid an invasion, that would have been bad because it would have continued the Western delusion that Putin could be accommodated. It's quite clear that Putin has now conquered Belarus. We're not talking about Ukraine. We're talking about his use of military uh, forces to effectively force the Belarusian dictator to use uh, Belarus as part of Russia. And he has uh, made it clear that he has wanted Ukraine uh, in, the so in the Russian orbit. Um, if he accomplished it by peaceful means, that's still a victory for him. So I don't think that whether Trump could have invaded a war is the right question. The real question is, could Trump have changed Putin's designs? And I don't think that's possible. Putin came to power with this design in mind, and he has cautiously and prudently exerted his power and increased it over his 22-year reign over the Russian people. If you could take off your columnist hat, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and here's why I'm asking this question, because I... You know, I, I'm going to take off my hat as a journalist and just looking at the images that we're seeing um, and some of the analysis saying, you know, we haven't seen anything like this since World War II. Uh, you see Ukrainian citizens in uh, taking shelter in subways. You see... Uh, people loading up in cars, taking everything they can uh, take in, in, in a car and trying to flee uh, parts of Ukraine. It is really remarkable to see this unfolding on television. What are your thoughts as you watch this unfolding? 
Well, there's a couple of things. Um, what we're seeing is what's been going on in the rest of the world. You know, that war was launched in Syria and millions of people fled. Um, war was launched in Libya and a nation collapsed. Uh, wars have been launched even in Europe. You know, we forget about the uh, Serbian invasion of Bosnia and the Western support uh, and the attack uh, on Serbia, led by NATO and the United States over Kosovo. Um, so it's not unique of what's happening. What is interesting is how much television is able to bring us, not just from Ukraine, but from Russia. I mean, the Russians haven't kicked these journalists out. So you literally have American journalists filming Russian troops attacking Ukraine from the Russian side of the border. That's really what flabbergasts me, is that Putin feels so confident in his position that he doesn't even see the need to restrict Western um, uh, communication of what he's doing in real time. Uh, that's a pretty amazing thing. Uh, but look, Europe has to understand that history didn't end in 1989. Europe has to understand that Putin means to restore Russian dominance. That means restoring Russian control over the Baltic states, which are EU and NATO members. And it means restoring Russian uh, sphere of influence over Eastern Europe, which are NATO and EU members. And when they realize that, they'll realize that history didn't start and that they had better get in tune with what's happening and decide whether their freedom is worth defending. Henry Olson, columnist with The Washington Post. Thank you. You're welcome. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.